Welcome to Podshot, everyone. I'm Seb, and I'm hosting this week, which means Will is not with us this week, but we have a guest of equal, if not superior knowledge with us here. It's the wonderful Tim from the Askcast and the Arsenal Vision podcast, and many, many other things pertaining to Arsenal women and Arsenal men. Tim, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on, and you're now able to fulfill in the wonderful tradition of answering the potshot question. Just an obscure question to ask that is not football-related. Okay. Considering this has been short notice for me, uh, I'm just going to reuse the question I used uh, the last time I hosted this podcast, which is, Tim, what's your favorite film of all time? Uh, my fa- th- There's two answers to that question. <clears throat> my, my kind of um, slightly pretentious... I studied a bit of uh, film at, at university. Answer is actually Wizard of Oz. Um, if like the original Frank Baum Wizard of Oz from 1939, that that would be my, I think that is the greatest film of all time answer, just because a film that was made in 1939 and appeals to every single age group, I think is like impossible to do it's impossible to conceive if you ask someone to do that they won't be able to do it so i think that's the greatest like piece of cinema i guess of all time but my actual favorite film is probably pie which is the first darren aronofsky Mm -hmm. film um which is a kind of it's a film noir but it's like again this is my slightly uh pretentious uh, I studied a bit of film answer, but it actually subverts all of the in, uh, the conventions of film noir. But essentially it's about a guy who's a mathematic genius and he kind of works out a pattern to the stock market and that makes him uh, a very dangerous man and a, very, uh, a, a man who basically comes uh, to the interest of the authorities and it's about him kind of getting away from them because he's, you know, cracked the stock market in his head basically and it's uh yeah it's it's yeah darren aronofsky's first film so darren aronofsky went on to make requiem for a dream which is another brilliant movie and then he kind of became a little bit more mainstream hollywood the wrestler black swan films like that but yeah pie is his first movie and uh i think uh, a masterpiece and one i could watch and have watched many many times now Full disclosure, I haven't actually watched Pi. It's a massive knowledge gap in my... <laughs> I I thoroughly recommend it. It's great. Yeah. It, I, I suppose it's a trick question, right? Considering there's so many movies and so many genres out there that and so many sort of different ways of, of enjoying movies that answering that with one question, with one film just doesn't really... Yeah painful picture which is why i usually just defer to my letterbox top four in there just those give a sort of picture of what they what it is right if i had friends around for a movie night pie probably isn't the movie i'd choose because it's probably a bit <laughs> yeah. of an acquired taste like <laughs> then you'd move more towards like goodfellas or something like that or, mm. or casino like something that's you know got a bit more like mass appeal but for me pie enormously appeals so does requiem for a dream but um well, I say it a pit. I mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant movie, but mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but th- there really is only so many times you can watch it because the ending is, yeah. is is very, very tough and you kind of need a drink or a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be in the right space. You have to be in the right space. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. But though my best efforts are being used, this just isn't a film podcast just yet, and we're here to talk <laughs> about football. So uh, we'll just move on to what has happened since we last spoke. Since we last spoke, things seem to continue in a positive way. Halftime away at West Ham, Arsenal were in the lead thanks to an Alessia Russo header from a set piece. But the host struck twice, capitalizing on the Gunners' poorest defense to sneak a 2-1 win. Defeat in the FA Cup followed, Elia Alexandri goal being what separated the two sides on the day with some sensational goalkeeping by Chiara Keating. Arsenal were able to get back on track in the Conti Cup, comprehensively beating London City Lionesses 4-0 before, before Man United came to the Emirates. A sensational first half saw Arsenal roll into a 3-0 lead with an own goal set piece, a Chloe Lacasse header and a Kim Little penalty. The second half saw more chances for the hosts to extend their lead, but a late Lucia Garcia goal cut the score to 3-1 on the day. A good way to end the week. And I think we're going to start with the West, uh, with the Man United game, considering it's yep. probably the biggest talking point out there right now. Um, mm-hmm. I think there were a lot of question marks before the game when the lineup first dropped. There were some enforced changes with uh, Amanda Ilstedt being out, with Leah Williamson suffering a was it thigh problem? Was it a hamstring injury? Yeah, a slight hamstring injury. So we saw Laia Codina obviously come in at, uh, at center back, but there were also different changes that weren't enforced, but did cause some question marks. We saw uh, Sabrina D'Angelo coming in and go. We saw Chloe Lacasse come in at left wing. Uh, Kim Little played the number 10 role. And I suppose it wasn't that obvious at the beginning. Some of it was obvious considering we saw similar things in the reverse fixture, though in a different structure. <clears throat> but how many of those changes, if any, were related to the game plan we had against Man United specifically? I know you wrote some some yeah. a good piece on on the specifics of how we exploited some of United's deficiencies. Yeah, as as soon as I saw the lineup on Saturday morning, I was I was very confident. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. Stina Blackstinius, her third WSL start of the season, two of them have been against United, yeah. so no coincidence there. Sabrina D'Angelo has made two WSL starts this season. They are both against Manchester United. Uh, the actually the Kadena one is more of a coincidence. That was her second, and the other one was against United, Both were but against that's Manchester more related United. to, yeah, yeah, and it's more related to injuries. Otherwise, I don't think she would have played. But um, essentially, what United do? So last time we played United, Russo started on the right, and Kim Little started on the left, and Steena started through the middle. Sabrina D'Angelo started in goal. Let's start with that one. D'Angelo. St- essentially, it was all about United. They they leave gaps in their defence. They push mm-hmm. up. They push their fullbacks on. This time, both of their first choice fullbacks are injured. So they moved Hannah Blundell to right back when she usually plays left back. And actually, I, I think they could and should look at upgrading there anyway. Um, and they played Gemma Evans, who's their like fourth choice centre half at left back. So essentially, they already push up and give you lots of space in behind. And that's why. Stina started um, in the reverse game. Like Idaval said, I wanted someone who runs in behind against them. So starting Chloe Lacasse as well, same deal. Like Chloe Lacasse, as we saw many times in this game, when there's space in behind, she'll 
she burned Blundell for pace time and time again. Both of United's fullbacks were on a yellow card after 32 minutes. D'Angelo starts because she is very aggressive off her line, but also she's got a good long throw and a good long kick. So that was about... We didn't actually have to see it that much in this game, I don't think, because United were so meek. <laughs> I was just about to come on to that, right? Like Idaval said in, in, I think it was pre-game that the Sabrina D'Angelo decision was largely based on her performance in the Conti Cup. Mm. But obviously we did see it against United in a reverse fixture and there are some tactical things that did lead to that decision, but we didn't really see it uh, really play out in the game. No. At least that one, right? We, we saw it a bit in the away game. So the principle is she's she's a, she's a bit more David Raya, right? She yeah. comes off her line, claims the ball, and then it's out quickly. And they felt that, like, like basically Arsenal picked a counter-attacking team. As for, and But again, like with D'Angelo, like United didn't really attack, so there wasn't much counter-attacking, but... <laughs> Basically, Arsenal picked a team to to run United and run in behind them. With Kim Little at 10, um, that was about looking after Katie Zellum because another one of the tactical mistakes I think United have made this season, last excuse me, last season they played a double pivot with Zellum and Hayley Ladd. That was very much a double pivot. I think that really helped protect their defence. They also had Onabache last season, probably the best fullback in the world. Like you can't replace Onabache with with uh, quality like that. And so to come into this game with your backup fullbacks when you're already weaker at fullback anyway, and then to not play that double pivot, and then to not start Leah Gorton on the left, who came on as a left back in the second half. She's not really a left back, mm. but she's played mm. there. So you would have thought it would have made more sense to play her, you know, particularly in front of um, a, a centre-half like Gemma Evans, who's really not comfortable there. So United, basically Arsenal picked a team to exploit those weaknesses and United said, yep, go ahead, basically. <laughs> and that's why, as much as this was a good performance and a really good result, I was mega confident before this game because we may well come on to this. These are not the teams that Arsenal are struggling against. And United, you know, this is going to sound harsh, but there we go. Like United are a team that push up and play like Chelsea and Man City do, but I just don't think they have that level of quality at the moment. So this was a very nice game for Arsenal and this is kind of what I expected to happen and even more so when I saw the lineups. Yeah, I think it has to be said that on top of having to choose like solutions at fullback rather than answers at fullback, their pressing organization on the day was horrendously bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like Leo Volta, again, they Arsenal had a bit of a plan with Lotta, Wubemoy, and Leo Volta mm -hmm. to really like spread the play and hit the wingers early. Again, United just <laughs> stood back and just went, yeah, okay. There you go, like no pressure on the ball, no pressing structure. Didn't see Ella Toon, like even someone like Ella Toon, yeah. didn't really see her pressing very much. I'm not sure Jay-Z and Lucia Garcia are naturals at that anyway, but I'd say that Ella Toon is, Nikita Paris is someone that will do that, but there just seemed to be no structure there. So as much as I will absolutely take this win all day long and what it's done for the league table and everything... I've more got my eye on the next game at home to Tottenham because they're going to come and sit nine behind the ball 
And that's where I want to see Arsenal improve. Yeah. Before we get on to the future and sort of looking at Arsenal more generally, I just want to come on to two individual performances real quick. Uh, the first one being Laya Kodina. As someone who had a really rocky start at Arsenal with the injury and sort of squad dynamics shaping out that she ended up being fourth choice center back, uh, not really gaining any rhythm. And when she did play seeming sort of really off the pace and to a point where the signing itself looks, in hindsight at least, a bit puzzling, she she did start off as shaky as she, as she's looked sometimes, uh, but but I feel like she did settle down somewhat into the game, and I I just wanted to get mm. your perspective on her performance in this game, and sort of uh, her as a signing and sort of her future at Arsenal in general. Yeah, the first five minutes were scary. Uh, this this was her first WSL start for for four months. Like you said, she had a bit of an injury, and effectively she is a victim of Lotta Wubben Moy's form. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's also interesting, the last couple of games, Kadena was signed as a left centre-back because mm-hmm. Hafaieli left and Arsenal couldn't find a top left-footed centre-half because they're so rare. The amount of teams that, like Chelsea, don't have a left-footed centre-half, Lyon don't have a left-footed centre-half. Bayern don't like either, right? Barca have Bayern don't, no. Um, Wolfsburg played Dominique Janssen, who's predominantly right-footed, but is actually very strong on her left. She's a bit like Leah Volti in that respect. Like, she can more than get away with it. She, but, like, there, there's basically really no one except Mappy Leon at Barca um, who who really, really does that. Um, and I guess Paulina Dudek at PSG, but I think she's injured anyway. So, like, there just aren't many of them around. But in this game, and the last game as well, Kadena played on the right. And they kept Lotta on the left of the centre-half pairing. And I think what that tells you is that the left centre-half role is Lotta's until further notice. Because yeah. what managers do yeah. is they don't they accommodate the backups. That's what they generally yeah. do. Yeah. Is In his mind, he's because right centre-back is Leah Williamson's spot. Nobody is taking that. So it's the left centre-back spot. And that's what Kadena was brought in for. But for this game, she played... I mean, she's right-footed, so it's kind of fine. But that, to me, was very much, you're the backup here, and Lotta is playing left-centre-back because she is the first choice in the team at the moment. And that can all change, and Kadena will have had to adapt. She's come from Barca. I don't really know how good her English is, so I don't want to speculate on that. But all of the stuff about needing to settle and stuff like that... and. You know, things things change very quickly in football, right? Because Lotta, this time last year, was looking at Leah Williamson and Hafaieli and probably thinking, how do I ever get into this team? And then stuff just happens in football sometimes and it opens up for you and, and she's really taken her like taken her chance. And, you know, that's that's what Kadina's gonna have to do effectively. But really, I think the market just wasn't great for what Arsenal were really looking for for centre halves and Illichtet was, I think, a bit of a short term signing to cover for the fact that Leah just wasn't going to be there for the first half of the season. So Kadina, I think, was particularly because of her age, probably intended as the more long term signing. And obviously, she left Barca because she was third choice there. So you know, it's 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 going to have to turn around for her at some stage, which it could, but at the moment. Yeah, it's probably not gone 
quite as, as she wanted. But I think she settled into this game just fine. After that shaky first five minutes, which was her and D'Angelo, just a lack of understanding between those two because they don't play very often. I think she really settled down and she was fine after that. Yeah, both got extremely lucky on that sequence where D'Angelo had to come out and clear Lucia Garcia because that yeah. I, I saw it back recently and mm, the ball was... Mm, it could have been it. She took both, basically. Yeah. She took Nikita yeah. Paris yeah. and she took the ball and you could have interpreted that either way. Yeah, true. I think what has sort of always stood out with... Uh, with Kodina a bit, is her passing range. I think she does have a really good range of passing in her, of both feet, actually, when, when she did play at left <laughs> centre back in the few games at the start of the season. Um, but I, I suppose it's a case of squad management and sort of finding roles for individual players that have been brought in that sort of haven't played so much. And that brings me on to the second player I just wanted to talk about, which is Chloe Lacasse, who up to this point has almost exclusively played on the right wing as a sort of backup mm-hmm. slash alternative to Beth Mead. And I suppose with her history at Benfica and the sort of player she is, it always puzzled me why we haven't seen her being an analog to Caitlin Ford more, especially when Ford has been in sort of up and down form throughout the season, having someone there who's similar in nature and probably best at left wing considering she has more natural access to her right foot and sort of moves there. She's a bit more direct than Caitlin Ford is. Caitlin's someone who probably likes to fix her defender more and sort of get into those one-on-one situations. Mm-hmm. Chloe Lacasse is a lot more goal focused, a bit more Beth Mead that way, actually. Um, yep. I suppose, is this an, an opportunity to now find her more game time there and sort of have this be a more regular thing? Or do you think we just, this has just been a sort of game specific situation? A hundred percent it is. <clears throat> and I know that it it was largely tactical because United are one of the few teams that do leave that space in behind. But Jonas also said, in fairness, he talked about the Man City game and uh, he kind of hinted that he, because she didn't even come on in the City game and he hinted to me very broadly that he regretted that and that he didn't feel Arsenal did enough to kind of drive in behind. I mean, there are two questions really, is can she replicate that against a deep block where the fullback is not committed, where the right winger is not JC, um, kind of, you know, standing on the halfway line and waiting for the ball to come back to her? Can she Mm. do that when she's doubled up on? I'm I'm open-minded about that because... I mean, look, I'm not going to pretend I watched a lot of Benfica, but I imagine Benfica came up against deep defensive blocks quite often um, in Portugal. Uh, You know, how well those teams did it, I think, is probably another question. But True. I mean, essentially, Lacasse was brought in because she's the closest thing to Beth Mead out there. Mm -hmm. That's why Arsenal tried to get her in January. Um, But I definitely think on the left... There is an opportunity for her there as well. At Benfica, she played both sides and through the middle. Benfica played this really fluid front three because they had Jessica Silva as well, who they still have, phenomenal player, very similar. And uh, Kika Nazareth, um, who uh, I'm kind of surprised is still at Benfica, actually. Her her agent is uh, Jorge Mendes, um, so make of that what you will. Uh, his his only female client. So that's how highly she's rated. And they had this real carousel kind of front three going on, which to be fair, 
Arsenal don't do under Jonas Eidevau. It's very quite fixed in terms of positions. But I think this performance and the fact she's done it on the left does open up an opportunity for her because I don't think it sounds like we're going to get much football out of Lena Hurtig before the end of the season. And that's been a real big loss for Arsenal because not just because, you know, ideally on the right, you've got Lucas and Mead. That's great strength. Then on the left, Ford and Hurtig would be good strength, but we don't have Lena Hurtig. So the fact that Lacasse can play on both sides more so probably than than Mead and Ford. Mead and Ford can, but they they're quite fixed in their positions. I think that does open up an opportunity for her, and I think the real shame for her is she goes away to the Gold Cup now, because yeah, I wouldn't like if there was another game this weekend and she wasn't away. I wouldn't mind betting that that Jonas would give her another go, um, you know, and, and to kind of say, okay, all right, we're not playing Man United this time. We are playing a deep block, but let's see what you've got. And Caitlin had a knock as well. Um, she got a knock in the LCL game originally. I don't think they really wanted to bring her on. And Caitlin, crucially, is also one yellow card away from a suspension. So they needed to protect her because while Chloe Lacasse is away, they definitely need Caitlin Ford to not get suspended. Yeah. Do you think there's a sort of long-term question mark over the winger positions in general, considering the sort of age profiles each player has in, in those positions, right? Like Beth Mead is coming close to 30. Same with Caitlin Ford. Chloe Lacasse has already hit 30. Lena Hurtig's probably, I think she's the furthest away. I think she's 28. Yeah, I I can't remember. She's 27 or 28, I believe. Yeah, but. she's the youngest of the group, but probably the least sort of dependable, especially considering her uh, her injury record. Do, do you think the that's, least uh, available? Yeah, yeah. Do you think there's scope for sort of long term planning in that position? Yeah, definitely. So, I I know that left wing is is you know pretty high on the shopping list for the summer, um, but also bubbling underneath. I mean, Arsenal have Gio as well, mm-hmm. who's out on loan with Madrid, CFF. I'm not, it's me speculating, I'm not sure how much of a future she has. Like, it's The it's loan gone. situation's just really murk that relationship yeah. in that way. It's, I, I, yeah, and, and I kind of think there's fault on both sides um, there. I, mm-hmm. I don't, so for, for listeners who don't know, we Arsenal signed her in summer of 2022, immediately put her out on loan to Everton, which I think was a, a decent decision. Then Arsenal got loads of injuries and called her back for the second half of the season, but still didn't really play her. And then there were a number of loan deals in the summer that all collapsed. Um, and so she wasn't registered for the first half of the season. So essentially, like a year's wasted, basically. And the Everton loan didn't go great anyway, but that was largely because she had an injury. So, you know, her development's really stalled. She's gone to Spain on loan as well, which I don't take as a great sign. I really think if Arsenal and her were mutually invested in her future, she'd have gone to a WSL club. Um, I understand why she wanted to I think to the to Katrina Cool loan just completely exactly. shows that and how... The development there is being tracked on Everton and so Exactly, exactly. And they've sent her to a coach that she knows, that Jonas knows very well, that they selected like a passing tip. Like 
that was someone sat down and worked that out. Whereas I kind of think with Gio, it was it was more go out on loan. And, and obviously she grew up in Spain and all of that. So that might suit her more. But I, I kind of personally mentally discount her. But the really interesting player that's coming up that I think causes a discussion is Michelle Ajimang. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michelle Ajimang has just turned 18. She's on loan at Watford. And she's far too good for Watford, um, who are bottom of the championship. But the reason she's gone there is because she's still at school and it's geographically convenient for her to stay at home, stay at the same school, etc., etc. Otherwise, she'd have gone much higher up that division on loan and she's absolutely killing it. And uh, Arsenal, it looks like Arsenal have got a player on their hands there. And there's, you know, I I still think she'll probably go on loan to a WSL team next season. So I I don't necessarily think it's... It's coming right now. But, you know, you talk about the age profile of some of those wingers. If I was her, I'd be looking at that and saying, OK, in a year or so, there might be something for me here. And obviously it depends what Arsenal do in the left wing position as well. But, um, yeah, it, it, it seems that we bought Lacasse when she was 30. So that was never a long-term investment. Um, contracts are shorter and turnovers greater in women's football anyway so buying 30 year old and, and the money's not huge anyway so buying 30 year olds is not like it is in the men's game but you know if I were Ajimang I'd look at that and think okay so Arsenal bought a 30 year old I think a two-year contract like my aim is to be in contention when that contract ends and so there's there's definitely stuff bubbling underneath that I think is very interesting. Do you think she's fits into the profile of what Jonas wants as a winger? In the very limited game time I've seen her, she seems like a more natural centre forward to me. Yeah, she's got. Um, she's got. Do you know who she reminds me of a little bit? Is uh, Asisa Oshwala, who mm-hmm. was at Barcelona and has now moved to BFC. And Oshwala moved between playing out wide and playing up front when she was younger. And then when she went to Barcelona, obviously Barcelona have got like the best wingers in the world. So they put her through the middle. I, I, I'm pretty open-minded about it. I think she could do either. I think she's got a better chance of breaking through at Arsenal as a winger though. And she does have that profile where she's very direct. She takes people on, um, you know, very good at cutting in on her, on her right foot and getting shots off. I do think that there's uh that there's like potential there that she could really fit in as a, as a Jonas style winger um you know like holding the width as well and coming in like i think she could be coached quite easily to be a Jonas style winger equally i think she could be a center forward but i think that you know Russo's presence if arsenal can convince Dina Blackstenius to sign a new contract which i believe they're currently trying to do that that Avenue looks slightly less open um, to me. I, I'd have thought like a, a goal-scoring winger on either side, and I think her options are relatively open there as well. I think we're going to a little break now. Uh, when we come back, we're going to chat about a bit of the general season Arsenal have been having, some of the struggles we've seen, and where we are in the complexion of the league at this point. We'll be right back after this. I hope you enjoyed that sweet, jazzy jingle, as always. Tim, I think the season has sort of been interesting, and I think the it's it's been kept sort of punctured by the reaction to the Man United game with 
huge adulation at the result and probably some other results in WSL this weekend with the underlying dread and sort of, how can you say this, frustration with the words Spurs, West Ham, Liverpool. Um, And I think that sort of sums up the season in that we've been extremely competitive in these quote-unquote big games. We were excellent against Chelsea. We're able to really get the perfect game plan there. We were good against Manchester City in the league game. This game shows the exact same. But where we've fallen down somewhat is in the quote-unquote lesser games and sort of lesser games, probably the wrong word here. Where we have fallen down is in these sort of games against teams that aren't going to engage with us the same way as the cities, Chelsea's and United's would. And I suppose the question here is, first of all, a fundamental one in that with Jonas being a coach that sort of predicates his game plan on directness and pressing, is a consequence of that this sort of, we've seen it in the wins as well, that sort of very slow, ponderous possession in the first half of games where we aren't able to sort of systematically find the spaces we want to. Yeah, I I think it's a little bit of that. And when he was first appointed, I had a conversation with someone who, um, he talks about this himself, he once lost the league on goal difference in Sweden. And uh, one of the results that season were Rosengård drew nil-nil against uh, the team at the bottom of the league. So I'd, because a word you'll hear him say a lot is structure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he kind of, in terms of positioning, there isn't a lot of fluidity. And that, may, that that's why Arsenal are good in the big games, right? They're yeah. very solid. The midfield pivot stays as a midfield pivot. Uh, the fullbacks are covered for yeah. and everything. We are with Manchester City, probably the most positional yep. teams in the yep, league. Absolutely. And um, so th- there's a bit of that. I do also think there's a little bit of, there's a lot of new players have come in. Um, I think it's nice. Mm-hmm. If you discount some of the, like Jody Taylor coming in on a short-term loan and Sarah Buhadi, who's come in on a short-term loan as a, as a, a backup goalkeeper and probably won't play like even without them it's like nine first team players that have come in in the last year so I do think there's a little bit of that going on but I think central to that a little bit is obviously Arsenal changed their striker in the summer and brought in Alessia Russo and it, it's very men's team coded because Alessia Russo is very similar to Gabriel Jesus in that Everything she does outside the box is is really, really good. Like, really good. She is elite at holding the ball up. Great touch. Works super, super hard. But she just doesn't get in the penalty area enough at the moment. And I had a conversation with Jonas about this uh, on Friday. So it was actually, it's kind of, it turned out to be quite good timing because Russo was left on the bench for the first time in the WSL. And... You know, he talked quite frankly about how particularly Kelly Smith is on the coaching staff is working with her not to get attracted to the ball all the time, to stay in the area. And she scores a headed goal against uh, London City Lionesses on Wednesday. Half her goals last season for club and country were their head. I think Arsenal really want to utilise that and we haven't seen it enough. And I do think, I think there's an element to which Arsenal are slightly repurposing Russo because they believe 
that she can be an elite penalty box striker and they kind of just want her to stay there a bit more. And that's not 100% natural to her, but I think they think it can be. But I do think that there's a there's a slight soft factor here going on as well in that, like you said, Arsenal, it's not instinctive yet in the final third. There isn't that fluidity. There isn't that kind of people knowing each other's movements, people taking chances. And so there's a mixture of sometimes Arsenal are struggling to break people down. And I think Russo's instinct is to go towards the play and help. And actually, sometimes it would help if she went away from the play a bit more. And I do also think that there might be, you know, in her mind, it's like, oh, my God, my my signing this summer was the most talked about signing in women's football, pretty much huge, huge coverage, big spotlight. She's trying to properly nail that England number nine spot. And I, I think maybe she's just trying to do a bit too much um, at the moment. I am pretty confident that will be sorted out with time. Um, I might be wrong about that, but I, I do I do kind of see the vision, um, to coin a phrase, but it's not quite there yet. It's just not quite there, and we need her penalty box presence. And I think the other thing is we don't really know what we're doing in the number 10 role anymore. Last season, Frieda Mornham had a really good season there, but I think Frieda and Stina Blackstenius works really well because Frieda doesn't run in behind. She wants to shoot. She's great at it. And Stina helps her do that because Stina's like a blocker NFL style. She'll go and like run everyone back towards the goal. And obviously Russo doesn't really do that. And then there's Miedema and Miedema and Russo at the moment. That's that's That could work in terms of the fact that they can swap positions. I don't think we've seen that yet. And to be fair, Viv is coming back from an injury, so they haven't really been able to work on it that much. And then sometimes they use Kim Little there, which I still think is maybe the best choice at the moment. But she doesn't really run in behind either. So, you know, I I think there's quite a few different things going on there that are just taking a bit of time to work out. Yeah, you made a few good points that I wanted to come on as well. Um, I do think the, the number 10 thing is one of the biggest factors in Russo's sort of struggles this year with especially in against teams that sort of sit in having Monum there with her is just too many ball to feed players with yep. and and then you have another thing which sort of goes back to a huge thing this season which is the on paper at least the Vivruso combination is probably the one that is the most promising and we've only really had a four or five game stretch for them to really find a groove together mm-hmm. And in that, there's this sort of overlying theme throughout the season, which I find fascinating in that with last season being as disruptive as it was, there was there's this huge emphasis this year on finding stability within the team and sort of marking out a first 11. But once you do that, you also sort of tie yourself to those players and have to sort of carry them at points when they're in bad form. I think that's sort of been indicative with Caitlin Ford at points. That sort of leads to this balance that needs to be had where you have players like Chloe Lacasse on the bench and have players like Monum who you could bring on situationally. But there's also this undercurrent of wanting stability and wanting to get people who haven't played with one another as much as they have done to find a sort of unit 
unified hymn sheet of which to sing and sort of that balance has been probably the biggest issue we've had this season yeah i i definitely agree and i think i kind of think that was always going to be the case maybe not to this extent i think the extent of it has probably surprised me but Mm -hmm. essentially arsenal have just never worked with a squad this size before with this many options yeah and you're right there's a tension between rotation having different like, like th- this is the good thing about saturday well everything was good about saturday don't get me wrong but i've i've kind of downplayed it because i've kind of said i think it was just a perfect game for us but what what really shows promise is the fact that lacas and blackstenius started and ford and russo didn't because those were the best players for this game plan against this team and i think that shows real promise being able well, we did something a little bit similar at West Ham at home, which maybe we should have done in the away game where mm-hmm. Cooney Cross started in midfield because there was... The Cooney Cross game. Yeah, yeah, there was a real plan to whip the ball out wide early and she's really good at doing that. So what Arsenal have is like a bit of a toolbox and they can say, actually, for this game, we're going to play you because you've got this quality that works for this game. I think that's where Jonas is trying to go but you're right there's a tension between rotation and stability and Arsenal aren't there yet and when you look at Chelsea under Emma Hayes like they they've been there for years it took them years to get there though because they they do something very similar they have their five or six core players and then they rotate the rest around that and it took them a little while to do that but now they can now they can for the last few years they've been able to do that and so That's where Arsenal are trying to go. And that's why I always felt this season was going to be a bit transitional. Again, maybe not to this extent, but I felt it would be a little bit. And I think what will be... I kind of always had my eye on next season when Chelsea have that massive disruption of losing Emma Hayes. United, I think, are going to replace Mark Skinner. Gareth Taylor has, has probably won himself another contract, to be fair. And when you look at when you look at the teams that have challenged Chelsea the last couple of seasons, they're the most stable teams. United had nine players who played uh, at least 20 of the 22 WSL games last season. City have got something similar this season. City had no European qualifiers, um, very settled summer. They only really brought in Gilles Rod, who was a great signing, now injured. Um, but they were very settled and they've had the same manager for a while and they just went into the season like, we're going to do what we've always done and we've had no distraction for that. And United had that last season. Arsenal haven't had that for a couple of seasons. What I'm looking at and have always been looking at is next season, I want Arsenal to be that team. I want Arsenal to be the team that's got, you know, hopefully the same manager, um, you know, and when I say that, I mean because I want him to succeed and therefore I want that to not be a question and therefore I want him to go into next season and I don't want that disruption again and to go back into a transition. And I want a fairly quiet summer where maybe, I don't know, two go in and uh, two go out and two come in, something like that, so that next season we are the most stable team. And that's kind of what I've always had my eye on which I I appreciate really sounds like an excuse, but I've got the receipts. I have been saying this all season and I don't think it explains everything and I don't think that absolves everyone. But I I do think, I also think 
as much as last season was defined by the players who got injured and went out, this season we're bringing them back in and you're having to do that quite slowly. So you were talking about Viv and Russo. Like Viv had another knee irritation that's disrupted that. That that happens. You're trying to bring Leah Williamson back into defence. Like this season was kind of always going to be defined by slowly reintegrating players as well. So what I want next year, fingers crossed, no more injuries. Those guys all have a nice full pre-season and everyone's ready on the racing blocks. And it's not as big a um, international summer. Some players will be at the Olympics, but not that many. And hopefully, even if we don't win the league, finish second and don't have to go into that really early Champions League round robin, which I think is... I think that was such a huge disruption yes, to the season as well. That was an earthquake. The sort of emotional toll that yeah. Exit took as well, yeah. I, I think generally it's extremely hard for being Arsenal to communicate a second consecutive season of being in a transition to the fans. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the sort of online displeasure with Jonas has come from. Yep. Which, you know, is is extremely visible. I mean, the, the yeah, reaction yeah. to the contract was what it was. Um, but to come back to the tension of this, this, this stability rotation thing, how much of that do you think... And I think this plays a part also in the transition as a whole with the the new cast of defenders we have. But how much of that do you think has played into the extremely porous defense we've seen over parts of the season where most of the sh- first shots of the game were goals and s- sort of Manu Zinsberger has cut a bit of an isolated figure at points and... I'm I'm glad I'm talking to you about this because yeah. I know you're a fellow uh, Manu Zinsberger uh, yeah. <laughs> apologist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it, it is exactly like that. It, it is exactly like because under Jonas, Arsenal have been very good defensively, been very strong. You look at they like I always think goal difference is obviously points is the most important, but goal difference really good indicator of a team's health. And Arsenal's goal difference, generally, you know, on par with where it should be in the top teams. But you look at City, Chelsea, they tend to score more goals, but they tend to concede more. And Arsenal been very, very solid defensively because they, they have that Chelsea have the City have the best defence. Uh, they they do this they? season. Yeah, this season it's different. But the first two seasons under Jonas, yeah. um, generally defence has been very solid. Again, I, I do think that is largely about, yeah, about, I mean... Arsenal lost Leah Williamson and Hafaeli, which is both their first choice centre-half partnership and they are both world-class players, I think. And so, and then they lost Laura Wienreuter as well, the right-back to injury. So they kind of lost three quarters of their first choice defence. And so I always thought that that was going to take a bit of a toll. Now they've made another change. I, I think a positive change, a good change, bringing Emily Fox in. Um, at right back but they're still like the other thing if there's one area where Arsenal are short I mean we talked about on the wing ordinarily that would be solved by Katie McCabe um, pushing up and playing as a winger but because there's only three fullbacks in the squad she's had to be a fullback either an inverting right back or a left back so she hasn't been able to play on the wing so Arsenal are carrying 
a bit of a lightness there. So essentially, Arsenal's season, they've they've really been going through three different right backs. And then yeah. they, you know, they played Illestet and Wubben Moy and who'd never played together before, but they got like eight, nine games in a row. That started to look better, still not perfect. And um, you're right, a lot of this, like the story of Arsenal's season is that they are underperforming their XG and they've conceded more goals than they should have on XG. And it's they don't give up many chances, but when they do, they're really good chances. And to your point about Zinsberger, I think there's only one goal that's been her fault this season, and that's the West Ham winner where she comes out and has a really poor punch. Everything else I look at and I think none of those are her fault. There's one or two. I get why people say maybe she should have saved that. Not sure I always agree, but it's not a mistake. There's only been one goalkeeping mistake from her. Um, and so it, it's the quality of ch- the, the chances Arsenal have been giving up have been very infrequent, but the quality of them has been very, very high. And um, I do think, to be honest, a player like Leah Williamson potentially solves a lot of that because she's one of those players who essentially the defence at the moment is defined by its structure and defined tactically. You bring a player like Leah Williamson in, you get a little bit extra. A, a bit like those strikers that can just score 20-odd goals, almost regardless of how you're playing. Like Leah Williamson's the defensive version of that. And once she's back and fully back, although she's just done her hamstring, and I think we're not see, we're not going to see the best Leah till next season. Like I do think that that potentially solves a lot of those issues. I do suspect that, as we've seen with the men's team, there's probably a bit of variance as well. So my my kind of um, my fingers crossed, looking to the sky to gods I don't believe in. Take is probably that Arsenal do some good luck, and in the second half of the season, and maybe do some players missing some sitters. Yeah, the biggest problem with that is that I, th- I think we've been talking about the variance in how frequent those small opportunities got in for since the lesser game pretty much which was right at the start of the season mm. um and i think with zinsberger it's it's interesting considering she just renewed her contract where she has been very very good over the last two seasons at the club i would say like yeah the the so. first two Jonas seasons especially if you consider what Jonas asks of his keepers and the sort of role she has in possession she's someone who can fully fulfill that she's someone who really has an infectious personality and though i i recognize how daft she she looked at times this season with some of the the goals that have happened i i think a lot of that is just the reorganization of the defense i think you yep. obviously are going to concede a bit of quality if you replace uh, Leah Williamson with Amanda Illustead and I don't think that's been a surprise to the club I think you cop that if you mm-hmm. buy a 30 year old backup central defender from PSG who has sort of been solid for the team and so is a good backup player but yeah, yeah. is precisely that um, so I think she, she she does get a bad rap at points and I, I think it's it's really important to pronounce her her importance to the team as well and I'm, I mean, you had an interview with her recently, which was mm-hmm. excellent as well. I can only recommend uh, people checking that one out. 
Yeah, and I, I really wanted to do that because um, I, I think there's a few things going on with, like, should we say, fan base reaction. I think it's quite natural that people just get bored of players when they've been around a while. <laughs> um, I think there's a bit of that. I think there's a little bit of maybe people not updating their priors. Um, so, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like the goal United score on Saturday, that is Sabrina D'Angelo's fault. She comes out and misses it. And look, it was 3-0 in the 93rd minute, so kind of who cares anyway. But at the same time, if if Zinsberger had done that, that would have created a stir. And that's just I, I think it's also D'Angelo's... worth mentioning that D'Angelo had, in both games against Manchester United, had moments where she yep. rushed out of her goal, which one did lead to a goal and one almost led to a goal. Or sort it, of it, probably her being like, sent off. Yeah, and in the reverse fixture, like both of the goals were were mistakes from her as well. I I tend to have sympathy with that just because she doesn't play yeah. very often. I, I'm I'm sure she played ten games in a row; those mistakes wouldn't happen um, as well. So, like, I'm not I'm, I'm not aiming to get on Sabrina D'Angelo's back here. They're timing but, mistakes like, she's as well, right? Less. Like those yeah, are rhythm exactly. mistakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you know when when you're not in the team, and so. I, I, I like I understand why those happen, but at the same time, like I also think that because she hasn't played as often, like people just aren't as bored by or annoyed by her, and you you know you get a bit more generosity. Whereas what I've seen with Zinsberger is I see a goalkeeper that has worked on her weaknesses. There were weaknesses that used to frustrate me that I don't see anymore. So she used to be really risky with the ball, like kind of in a good way, but sometimes it was a bit, oh my God, you'd have a heart attack. Don't remember the last the time. The quote you had, yeah, yeah, the quote you had uh, in, in the interview yeah, where she pushed she's great on, on the ball, but she's going to give you a heart attack once a yeah. game. Yeah, yeah which she, she really pushed back on, which, which, which is good because like she yeah. understands her position, right? But also like I felt... Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't even go as far back as that, right? Like, I, I can vividly remember, because it was Germany playing them, uh, at the Euros, where yep. Germany had specifically designed a game plan to press Sinsberger on her blind side when she's taking... Uh, and both goals came uh, from that. Taking goal kicks, yeah. And and that isn't as much of an issue anymore. Exactly. And I think she had a couple of seasons go an issue with long shots, which I don't think she does anymore, worked on her foot, her footwork. And like the the stat that really jumped out at me when I looked at it is she's catching three times the number of crosses that she was last season. And I think that was always a pretty fair criticism of her, that she wasn't commanding enough off her line. And what I see is a goalkeeper that that understands that and says, okay, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to work on it. And I think when you've got a 28-year-old goalkeeper who already has 250 games for Austria, Bayern Munich and Arsenal behind her, who's clearly very committed to her own improvement. I think it makes sense to invest in that player. And I think the other thing people miss is when you give a player or a manager a new contract, it is not a reward or a comment on what they've done. It's what you think you're going to get for the next contract. So I've seen a lot of people use that word, you know, oh, she's been rewarded um, for the for this like poor form or whatever, and it's like no no that's not what contracts are about. Contracts are about I give this player a two plus one. What do I think I'm going to get in the next three years? I think it is incredibly reasonable for Arsenal to say we've got a pre prime goalkeeper 
who's worked on, who's made tangible improvements in a number of areas, who's mega experienced as well. Like I would just say, where was Mary Earps when she was 27, 28? Nowhere near the goalkeeper she is On the now. bench at Wolfsburg, right? Exactly. She was on the bench at Wasn't Wolfsburg. Wasn't she still at Wolfsburg? Yeah. And then she came to United in the championship. And like, for me, also there's there's a kind of, if you're going to have Zinsberg slightly iffy years, it would be really annoying to let her go and see her turn into like the world's best goalkeeper. But like for me, I, I suspect Sabrina D'Angelo might go in the summer given that we've made that investment in Zinsberger and someone else might come in, whether that's Mary Earps or someone else, I don't know. And, and I'd support that. Like, I'm not saying I don't want Arsenal to try and get another really top-class goalkeeper. I just think the contract makes all the sense in the world, given her profile, her age, her experience. Like, I, I also kind of think if people watch WSL highlights and watch some of the goals goalkeepers concede that, they'd be delighted for Arsenal to sign. Like you watch those emotionally invested, I think you'd feel quite different about a lot of other goalkeepers as well. Yeah, I, I can vividly remember one of the goals Mary Earps conceded in the last international break when yep. the when Olymp, uh, Olympic qualification was still on the line, by the Against way. Against Belgium, yeah. Um, yeah, absolute yeah, shocker. Yeah, yeah. At the Emirates, Van Domsela, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not having it like, I think Van Domsela is a great goalkeeper, I think she yeah. made a really good move to go to Villa where she'll play regularly. But she makes a horrible mistake when Arsenal score in the last yeah. minute at the Emirates. Like yeah. it happens more yeah. than people I, think. I, I think it's just it's it's just a principle that every goalkeeper is bound to look stupid at some point yep. with goals they concede. Like David Rias looked like an absolute pred at points at the start mm-hmm. of the season. Now he's an integral way of how the immense team exactly. defend proactively. Exactly. Um yeah. I just I just wanted to go back to the contract thing at one point because I, I found it funny that you mentioned the not funny. I found it interesting that you mentioned the not rewarding people with contracts but giving them contracts for prospective futures. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for players especially, but I think to to pose a bit of a polemic question, Arsenal mm-hmm. have been a bit counterculturally uh, counterculture wise in their rewarding uh, I almost use that word again. <laughs> They've been a bit contrarian in giving managers contracts on the back of Lost Series. The last two contract extensions for managers have been the exact same way. Yep. And sort of the polemic question here would be with Jonas giving him a contract in a year of uncertainty where players are coming back from injury and you do have the underlying question of the sustainability of the game model against mm-hmm. sort of weaker opposition. Not that this is my opinion, but is there a case to be made that the contract was given prematurely at some point or sort of yeah. having this be a season of Jonas proving the sustainability of his model and sort of getting the contract at the end of that? Yeah, so That's, I, I suppose I, I think what the reason, what I think led to this from the club's point of view. My my personal view on manager contracts is if you're not in two minds about the coach, if you're not... Like at the moment with United, right, and Mark Skinner, I think it's kind of clear the direction mm-hmm. of travel there, that it's, it's going to end. Yeah. And that's kind of a bit messy. If you're not in that frame of mind, I say give the manager the contract 
because it's guess what it's really easy to sack them <laughs> it just is like i don't think i think people always think oh my god that means he's definitely here for 3 years it doesn't if if in the club size he messes up he'll get sacked just just like anyway it's the same with arteta at the moment in the men's team give that man a contract um right and if in 2 years it's not where you want it to be sack him like it's it's relatively inexpensive to do I think Arsenal, so that that contract was agreed during the summer, but you're right about the timing of the announcement was very deliberate when Arsenal had gone out the Champions League, lost their first game of the season. Like that isn't when they sat down and spoke about the contract. It happened quite a bit before that. They decided to announce it then, just like they did last time with Arteta. That's exactly right. They they announced the Arteta contract on the back of three consecutive defeats, and that was. That was by design, and that's kind of, you know, a bit of a club trick, I I guess. I think the thing is, the the reason I think it made sense, with the caveat that sack him if it doesn't work and do something else, first of all, like a lot of work has been done to make this his squad, and it now is. Mm -hmm. Every single player in that squad has either been bought by him or given a contract, like given a contract. So, like, no one in that squad is not in one of those two baskets. So this is his squad. And and so I kind of think he deserves a bit of time to get it together. Ob- obviously, with caveats, not if we're, like, mid-table or, or it just goes completely wrong. Like, Unai Emery, men's team, yeah, get rid. It's not working. You can see it's not working. <laughs> it's fine. Just cut the head off and go. Where, whereas, but I also think... The reason that Arsenal might have done it that makes sense is relative to what was happening with their competitors. So you're in a situation where both Mark Skinner is going into the last year of his contract. Gareth Taylor signed a one-year contract at the end of last year, which basically tells you that City were unsure but couldn't really think of anyone else to get. So they were kind of kicking the can down the road. And to be fair, he's earned his next contract now. But there was uncertainty over those two. And I wouldn't mind betting that Arsenal kind of knew that the US were sniffing around Emma Hayes. So I think like what I spoke about earlier about Arsenal being potentially coming into a period where they will be the stable team. I think there's a bit of that behind it. I think there was a bit of two of our competitors, got managers, well, all of our competitors got managers that that might well go at the end of the season. At least two of them will. We're going to put our our kind of fork, you know, our kind of flag in the ground and say this is going to be our manager next season. And 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 I do kind of get that. I more than kind of get yeah. it. I, I I think I'm broadly behind that thinking. Yeah, I I, I agree. It's just funny as, as as you brought up Mark Skinner. I just. I muse on how insanely similar the situations at both uh, uh, at, at Manchester United is across both teams, in that you have a manager that has largely overperformed last year on the back of some really really good individual quality, yeah. and is f- in a position where both are not satisfied with the coach at this point of the season, are question marks over the coach with both coaches saying some really really wild stuff in press conferences. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And like for both of them, kind of Mark Parsons 
is is out there at the moment. And again, I, I don't say this as criticism. This is exactly the right thing to do for someone in his position. But Mark Parsons is an English coach, been working in the US, had a short spell with the Dutch national team, which didn't go right. He wants to come back to England. And he is very much, I think, sitting there. I, I, I would bet money he'll be the next Manchester United manager, put it that way, because I think they're going to make a change. And I think he's probably been sitting there the last few months thinking City, United, one of these jobs at least is coming and I'll probably be in the frame. And yeah, I I would bet quite a lot of money that Mark Parsons will be a WSL manager in Manchester next season. And, and, and I think it's becoming increasingly clear which club that might be. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the other club is going to be sort of desperate for change in any way. No. Um, and that builds a great bridge to to the last thing I wanted to talk about, and that is City beating uh, Chelsea at the weekend, and the sort of state of play that has created in the league. We still play City once, we still play Chelsea once, Chelsea still play Tottenham, I think. They Chelsea play. have got United on the final day as right, well. They still play United. Uh, I think they still play Villa. Probably. Could be wrong. They, they're they in a situation where they have eight games in March because of the Champions yeah. League. So Yeah. At the March schedule is, is quite tough for them. So I suppose the question here is how realistic with everything that has happened this season and these sort of stupid trips up, these sort of unnecessary trip ups we've taken... How likely do you think any form of sustained title challenge is going to be in the state of play at the moment? Especially considering as well how strong City are looking at the moment. Yeah, I I think Arsenal are going to have to... like If Arsenal win all their games, they'll win the league, is, is probably the way I'd put it. I think that but would still clearly, be contingent on sit, on Chelsea dropping yeah. some more points, right? Especially considering goal yes. difference. Yes, yes, it would. I, I do think that's going to happen. The, the really weird thing is for Arsenal, Arsenal have got to go to Chelsea and to City. The positive mm-hmm. thing about that Chelsea, and, and like Stamford I said earlier, Bridge. those games, yeah, yeah, those games suit Arsenal. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Arsenal won one or both. I think they're going to have to win both, really. But then you worry about Tottenham at home. And Leicester, well, actually, Leicester play a very high defensive line. So maybe not so much them, but like Everton away and like games like that, where Arsenal are probably more likely. But obviously, you cannot hang your hat on getting six points at Chelsea and City. I think Arsenal will be very competitive in those games and will be very, very in them. But obviously, like getting six points is still a, a big ask. And I do think Arsenal are going to have to do that. And then, yeah, they're going to have to sort this problem against deep blocks. So it's it's not impossible. And when I say not impossible, I don't even mean like, oh, it's only vague. Like, I, I kind of... Because the thing is, City do drop silly points sometimes as well. Um and they've got, I think they've got a Manchester derby, haven't they, um, at home, which mm. is at the Etihad. Like you said, Chelsea's at Stamford Bridge, not King's Meadow. And I think that's nice for Arsenal. It also comes in a period where Arsenal are now out of the FA Cup. So they have the weekend off before that, that Chelsea game. They get nine days to prepare for that. 
Chelsea have got an FA Cup game, then they've got a Champions League doubleheader for Chelsea. Obviously, they've lost two massive players in Brighton Kerr. I think City are the favourites at the moment. I think everything kind of points towards that. I also think if Chelsea get through against Ajax, which I'd expect them to do, as good a team as Ajax are, in Emma Hayes' last season, even if they don't consciously do it, they might subconsciously prioritise the Champions Mm -hmm. League. And uh, I've been saying this all season. Even if they don't prioritise them, right, they do hold more emotional value in them yep. considering the stage it is on and that sort of takes some an emotional energy out of them as well absolutely and it takes physical energy as well because yep. you know if they get past Ajax they're going to be in a semi-final against Barcelona probably <laughs> and that that's that's going to be huge like the, those are two games where they're they're going to have like 25 percent possession so even just physically as well as emotionally and that They'd ha- you have to put everything into two games against Barcelona anyway. There's no other way. But that, like in their minds, they'll be thinking, but if we get past Barca, we'll be the favourites for the final. And that that's kind of a big kind of carrot for them as well. So I do think that, that things are slightly going against Chelsea in a way they just haven't for quite a while. And, and most of it's just because I think they've lost their two most important players in Sam Kerr and Millie Bright. City are the ones who are on the roll at the moment. Um, I do wonder a bit long-term how the Gilles Rourde injury might affect them. I do think City will have one more slip-up, but it might only be one more. So, um, yeah, I I think Arsenal are in there. Um, I wouldn't bet on it happening, but even if it doesn't happen, second and winning the Conti Cup at this stage I'd probably take. Um, because second, you know, you don't have that horrible qualifying round. And I, even that is something significant to go for, even if first is, isn't is quite there. It's crazy how one single result has completely shifted the perception of the title race and sort mm-hmm. of given hope where a week ago there was despair and that could entirely shift again at the weekend when not in the weekend it's the international break that could entirely shift uh, once we get back to league action and we play spurs and they shit house yeah. a 1-0 win so <laughs> yeah it, for, it's it's conscious talking about this in any case yeah yeah look for the neutral I, I suppose it depends on what you want for the neutral for the title race this was the best pack of results i guess yeah. you could say if you were invested in who finishes third, if United had beaten Arsenal, they'd have been one point behind and then you'd have had a title race and a race for the last Champions League spot. But if you wanted three teams in a title race, these were, one these three, were the results you wanted. One three-team race is better than two two-team races. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, just, yeah. I mean, that's that's a given. Um, yeah. So that'll be interesting to see how, how that uh, plays out. I think that's all we'll we'll do this week. Uh, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Um, Where can people find you? Yeah, my pleasure. So for those of you who are still on um, the the dying website known now as x.com, I am at Stillmanator. Otherwise, um, I I am the Arsenal Women Correspondent for Ask Blog News. That's a much better place to follow. That's where all the content happens. So we cover every single game in person, speak to the manager, three times a week, player interviews, match previews, 
tactical analyses, match reports, etc., etc., the whole works. So ask blog news uh, forward slash women and you'll find all of our Arsenal women content there. Brilliant. You can follow us at PodshotPod on basically every social media account. Um, if you want to follow any of the crew on social media, the links are in the description. If you like this podcast, it would be great if you rated and reviewed it on your podcast app of choice and sort of recommended it to your Arsenal friends so there are more people listening to very, very tactical analyses. The music is made by James Blake. You can find him on all good music platforms at JW Blake. We'll be back next week with a men's pod. We'll be back very soon after that with another women's pod talking about the relevant games. Until then, take care and bye.